And, you know, it's like, oh my God, we are here at a Black Lives Matter march. And the Black families, you know, all four of them come and I'm like, are we doing the right thing? Is this like all of a sudden I feel very white. Welcome to the Peaches Ain't Pink podcast. A show with two cousins from different worlds with the same dedication to glutes and truth. I'm Meredith Atwood, a former attorney turned coach and author of The Year of No Nonsense. And I'm Brianna Belser, a Harvard grad turned TV writer and actor. Leave your expectations at the door and join us. Time to grow your peach. Today we are talking about race and we have created a special series of our podcast called Karens and Queens (laughs) to cover this because we were trying to think of names for the podcast and this came up and I said, oh, this is too good to avoid. So welcome to it. We are in this and and honestly, this is probably where uh, Brie and I started, but then we thought we don't want to talk about this all the time, but we do want to talk about it. And so very, very important topic to discuss. And today we are going to talk about why is it always about race? Hmm. Absolutely. I love it. Um, we'll go back really quickly to this subseries. The name Karens and Queens yes. was beautifully engineered by Meredith. And Karens <laughs> is just referring to this um, term that describes white women who have been uh, weaponizing the police in order to keep black people obedient or in line. And they victimize themselves in order to do so. And then Queens, that's K-W-E-E-N-S, is just a take on uh, black people trying to affirm their own identities by referring to themselves as queens and kings. And sort of rejecting the notion that we are not valuable and that we are less than. So by saying Karens and Queens, whenever you see that on an episode title, that subseries, we're just going to, you know, dig into some issues about race and culture. And yes, as a white woman, I am not offended by the term Karen. If my name was Karen, I might be. Um, But so anyone (laughs) out there who's like, well, I'm not going to listen to this because look, it, it's a thing. It's out there. We're just going to roll with it. So don't tweet me that I'm racist against white people. <laughs> yeah, my you favorite, hear that? My favorite Don't at statement. me. Don't <laughs> at me that you're racist. We're just, it's a cute title and you'll know what's coming. So here we go. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So I'm so curious, Meredith, I know that you have been doing your research and you've been reading Ijoma Oluo's book. So you want to talk about race? Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how reading that book gave you inspiration for this episode? Yeah. And, and I've actually come across a lot of, you know, friend, I don't know, friends is a loose term, but acquaintances, family, social media, where a topic will come up, you know, say an arrest or an, something that impacts a person of color. And a white person generally will say, well, why is it always about race? This is not about race. This is about education. This is about um, this person had cocaine on them and they were arrested. Like that is, it feels like a certain white angle. (laughs) Why is it always about race? And so when I started listening to the book, 
the thing that really struck me as an answer to this question is when is it about race? And the answer being, it is about race if a person of color thinks it's about race and if it disproportionately impacts that person of color and or and or if it fits into a broader pattern of events that disproportionately or different differently <laughs> impact people of color. And so to answer the question, when is it about race? That's the answer. And so for white people who say this is not about race, if that is your response, one, you're not listening right. to the other side of the story. And I think that as a broader racial implication and where I sit as, as a person of European descent is we're not listening a lot of times. Totally. I, I, I think the interesting thing about this is being on the other side of it and watching white people have panics and meltdowns at finding themselves in racial situations and finding themselves in conversations about race. And if I could put forth a theory, I think it's often because white people don't think they're a race. I, it often seems like white people believe themselves to be the mainstream or the default or the standard and race comes into play only when things are not white. Mm. And for me as a black person, and I've had conversations with multiple people from all different walks of life, when I look at white people, their, their whiteness is visible to me because it's in contrast to some of my culture, to my experience. So I see white people's whiteness. I don't know that they see it. And so when it says this, when you know, I hear these things about police brutality is not about race, it's just policing. My thought is because you believe that policing by definition is appropriate, mainstream, and equally applicable to all, mm-hmm. you, your whiteness is invisible to you. Yes. So I must first convince you that you are white and that white looks a certain way, not that white is normal. And that is how pervasive the silencing is and when I, you say people are not listening, what I would say is they can't hear. Oh, they yeah. can't hear. It's not like they're hearing it and turning it away. It is not penetrating. Because right. In my view, white people do not realize their whiteness is visible and experiential. Yes. I mean, I'm sitting here like flabbergasted. I'm like, I don't even know I'm white. I, you know, and, and also like as a, as a white person, we don't know we're white until we are around a person of color. It's like, oh, and then you feel real, (laughs) then you feel it. And we don't like to feel that. And instead of like, and that's so funny. I mean, funny, not haha. I'm going to buzz myself. It's not funny. Um, But it, it is, it's sort of, embarrassing I guess is a better word embarrassing and what one of the things to go back to on police brutality like I was having a conversation with someone and they said well we need the police we need the police to patrol and and I said well okay so let me take that argument a little further where are they patrolling you know where are they driving back and forth on the streets and um this person said well they're everywhere and I said well, in my 97% white town, 
I can't tell you the last time I saw a cop car driving up and down my street. Ever. Right. They don't patrol my street. <laughs> so let's let's go, let's get granular for a second. In this example, right, this exchange that you had, it was a conversation about uh, police presence in different types of neighborhoods. Did you ever think you live in a white neighborhood? Or you just live in a neighborhood? And then if you go to an area where there are black people, that's a black neighborhood. But right. yours is a neighborhood, no adjective. Correct. And that's the thing that I think I'm trying to dig and drill down on is white people say, this is music. These are movies. These are books. This is a neighborhood. This is America. And my experience is these are white movies. These are white books. These are white narratives. This is a white yes. neighborhood. This is white America. And the reason is not to create difference. Your experience, if you are a white person moving throughout this country, is likely different from mine as a black yes. person moving through this country. And that must be acknowledged. So why is it always about race? Because race is a defining determinant in how I will experience the world. And white people don't believe that often. The white people who ask this question, why is it always race? Don't believe that they're having a different experience because it first begins with acknowledging that their experience stems from their whiteness. You're being treated this way because you're white, not because it's normal or they're good or you did the right thing. And maybe not even because the police clock consciously that you're white. It's subconscious. Right. We already see it that way. That is so fascinating. This is a movie. This is a house. This is, I'm like, oh my God, it's Sesame Street. Um, but you're right. And it is, I think with white people, there's a certain standard and, and it's our standard. And, and we're just wandering around like this is how it is and, and not conscious of anything to do with our race. Where the flip side, and correct me if I'm wrong, buzz me, is people of color always are aware, always aware of your race. And we're completely unaware. And so if that's the lens through which we're looking at the world, of course, we're not going to understand why it's always about race. I would make this recommendation for the folks who are listening who don't want to be the person who has their ears shut. For the folks who want to listen and lean in, who are white, what I would say is as you're learning, you don't need to learn about every culture. You don't need to learn about black people in order to not offend black people. My recommendation would be hunt for your whiteness. Mm. Find your whiteness and learn about it. How is it constructed? Because it's tangible. It's not real. You fundamentally being white aren't better, but the world treats you as such. See those instances, and then you can interact with all cultures, understanding your own. And just like you said, you're not conscious of being white until you're around people who aren't. This is a lot of the way that I learned my blackness was being the only and watching people interact and treat me differently as a result. So why do the Asian folks, folks from India, where have you, insert culture, difference, religion, ethnicity, why do they have such a visceral understanding of something being racially motivated? Because most rooms we walk into, we will be the only. Hmm. In our families, we're surrounded by people who are like us and we know how we're treated then. 
And when we go into these rooms where we're the only, we see the differences. And that's why it's crystal clear to us all. Yeah. And one of the things in the book I read, she said that we are a collection of our lived experiences. And I love that because our individual experiences are valid. And so as you experience life, like you said, walking into a room being the only, that is part of your life experience. And that therefore race is part of it. So if we're going to say, why is it always about race? It is because it's part of your lived experience. And so us not being aware of our race is also part of our lived experience, but you know, for, for, for worse. Right. And one of the, and I can tell, this is not going to make me look good, but I'm not here to look good. I'm here to talk about truth. Precision, not perfection. (laughs) Precision, not perfection. But this is how, so we moved to Massachusetts. We looked for the best schools, right? We just put our little white ass right here in a very expensive white neighborhood and sent our little precious white children to their, you know, their great school and did not even think about anything not even a thought, you know, until I woke up, you know, in February, March, whenever it was. And I start looking and I start Googling, what is the demographic of my neighborhood? 97.4% white. And so then there's a um, announcement that there's going to be a Black Lives Matter uh, March in our town. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to that. Right. And so we go to, and it's awesome. A lot of people turn out, yay, the white people in my town. Then the three or four black families come and I felt weird. And, you know, it's like, oh my God, we are here at a black lives matter March and the black families, you know, all four of them come and I'm like, are we doing the right thing? Is this like, all of a sudden I feel very white. And so that experience for me is what I can only imagine these types of experiences are for you. And this is probably, I'm probably getting it all wrong, but what the, the feeling I had was like, I'm the, I don't belong here. Like, why am I at the Black Lives Matter March? And I'm the white person. It was the weirdest feeling. You know, that's so funny. Pause right there because that's how I've often felt in all white spaces. Why am I here? I don't belong here. Right. And it's not about, and we'll take the charge out because it's not identical in the sense that this was a political movement about race. Um, But I do think that sense of otherness, that fish out of water experience, especially children, because now I'm, I'm too, I'm used to it. But as a small girl, when I started to realize that I'm black and I started to realize that everyone around me and when I was in all right, white rooms were white and they were having certain interactions with me. I felt singled out. Yeah. So hold on to that discomfort and remember it not as a guilt thing, but just as an informative tool. That was your lived experience and it's valid and it can be useful. I think also to the point of, are you doing something wrong? I think good effort is good. And if you're coming from a place of, you're valid, whatever you are, whatever creed, whatever culture, right? Your lived experiences are valid. You are valid. You exist here with validity, with value, intrinsically. It's hard to misstep, right? It's hard to, when you're just like, welcome, thanks for being here. Let me know if you have any questions. I'm glad to have you, just like you'd say to anyone else. It's not about being colorblind, but just 
be warm, be welcoming, be open, be contrite if you do make a mistake, right? And check in. And those, those are good efforts. And the sum total of good efforts, as I said before, is good. And I think part of the, and I, I will speak for all white people right now, <laughs> which you should never do, but I feel like that moment, the, the cumulative, oh my God, this is happening. The shame, the, like all of that feeling that we have been wrong as a culture, that I've been a part of it. I didn't understand my un- unconscious bias. Now I do. Holy shit. What do I do? Like all of that came down. And I think that's why so many people are like, no, thanks. Not going to, not going to face this, not going to look at it. And then coupled by the fact that we're at a political, polit- not political, um, life pro- protest, right? Whatever you want to call it. Um, and then people are driving by and they're honking in support and then they're shooting birds in protest and realizing the ones that are driving by, and I will stereotype them in the pickup truck with shooting a bird, um, that they're the same color as me. And the, the four black families that we're here to support, I mean, part of my community see that, you know, it's got to, it just was like this huge mind explosion. I'm there with my daughter and I don't think she got any of that because she's, you know, just there holding her sign like, duh, Black Lives Matter. That, that is one thing I like about, you know, we talked on the other episode about the other generation. I do like that about the kids. They're, they're like, well, it's a no-brainer <laughs> that Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, geez, we really could learn from them. I guess just to mirror that we don't see our whiteness until we are faced with it. And in and, and those situations are when we as white people really need to continue to sit still, listen, and lean in. Because if it hurts right. and it feels hard and you feel like you're going to throw up, you are on the right path. <laughs> yeah. You're there. Absolutely. 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 I think um, I would love to explore if it is about race and I'm 100% correct, what then, what then does it mean? And, and my theory is it means that you have to change. Yeah. Or it means that you've been wrong. You're wrong. You've been wrong. And your daddy and was wrong. And your granddaddy was wrong. And, and they were all wrong. And I think that's the sort of thing that I would love to dig into is, okay, this is about race. Let's say 100%. We got the facts. <laughs> like whoever from above sent us down and was like, yes, this, this was about race. What would that mean for it to be true? What are we fleeing? I mean, there's, there's a lot, right? Because if this is about race... That means there has to be significant changes. That means that there are certain privileges and, quote, rights and money and white schools and good schools. Money is a big one, And districting and voting that has to change. Like, I was, so we got a notice from our town that they're voting on all sorts of stuff. It came in this packet. And I said, oh, I'm going to read this because I'm a dork. And I start flipping through it. And there was a section on affordable housing that we believe in affordable housing. And I was like, oh, no, we don't because I can't even afford to live here. So let me read what this looks like. And oh my gosh, wrong. Like the provision basically said that if you build a neighborhood, 10% of that neighborhood has to be at some percentage below the value of the other homes. One, 10%. So if you build a home, a neighborhood of 10 houses, only one of them has to be slightly below cost 
and that satisfies affordable housing. Therefore, the school systems in our beautiful white town will remain beautiful white and good because they will never like, cause I, like, and not to say that there are not black people who make good money, not to say that, but historically, systemically, this has been part of the problem. So if you say this is about race, then you're going to have to dismantle that. All of a sudden the housing costs are going to have to come down in our dear white town. Lots of stuff has to change. And, and white people don't know what to do with that. That's where I'm going to, eh, okay, I'm going to buzzer and just take a, I'm going to take a moment to revisit. I think white people exactly know. I think they know. Do you? And that's why they fight so hard. I think they subconsciously not to even get know. into the conversation. Correct. Like, I don't think they know, think so. like people, some no, do. I don't think it's like, oh my God, we'd have to redo blah, blah, blah. But I think they know if this is a racial argument, I'm dead wrong. Oh yeah, for sure. I think that deep down, it can't be about race because in a conversation about racial injustice, white people who've perpetuated the system are dead wrong. Yes. And that is, that's my little buzzer ding revisit is, I believe, and this is why it's hurtful, is because you won't even let me put it on the table to discuss, much less to act on dismantle reform. I'm not even allowed to bring it up. And you know why. I'm convinced they know. Of course they do. Um, you know, the, and one of, I got in a conversation with someone else about, um, redistricting, voting districts, housing, bank loans, you know, the whole reason why wealth was built in white neighborhoods, why that, you know, people say, well, it doesn't matter, but education is funded on property taxes. And like, if you really like the reason there's not money in these districts, you know, it's, it's. And that was all planned. It's by design. That was, it's by design. Yeah, yeah, that was by design. And you can have a conversation with an older white person about this and they will deny. Like, just broadly, that did not happen. And I'm like, but it did. Look at this red line. <laughs> Let's look at the property taxes in here. And so when you have, and, and what you're saying about, you can't even say it. You can't even say that you drew red lines around these neighborhoods to keep me out because of race. You can't say that because you won't be heard. It, I can't imagine what that feels like. Right. And, and then you have people that say, you have white people who are like, I don't understand what, why everyone's so angry. Why are they so mad? You can't even talk about it. This beautifully segues into um, our sort of last silo of information on this subject, which you wrote from um, the book, So You Want to Talk About Race, which is the cumulative impact. My experience is a lifetime of these daily infractions, these exclusions, these fish out of water moments, the gaslighting where I'm told that history didn't happen, um, the pressure not to make someone feel uncomfortable because I'm uncomfortable and they're the cause. The cumulative impact is when something finally does burst through, like George Floyd, mm. something unequivocal where you cannot argue, then white people latch on to it was just this once. Yes. And my perspective is, this wasn't 
one drop in the bucket. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. You just happened to see this one fall. You just happened to notice this one. And then you'll go back to sleep. Or then you'll turn your ears off again. And it will, the accumulation for me that I will live and die with is also invisible. So I got one one little mark on the board, one little point on the board, but it it feels like a dis- diminishing and a gaslighting, and and honestly, sometimes it feels daunting, right? <laughs> Where I'm like, okay, well, they admitted though, just that like their next defense is okay. It's not about race. Okay, well, that was about race, but just, just this, this once. once, one time. And one of the things that she brings up in the book is. The spotlight, I loved, and I think this is verbatim. It's if not, it's a good, good summary. The spotlight by white people is shown on the freshest hurt, and then flipped to make people of color further oppressed. So, the abuser. Let me see. Um, oh, and and that the person may have had good intentions, and it was just this once. It was just the impact. You don't know that. You don't know who's going to be punching you. You just know someone will eventually. And that's your, you know, what is going to continue to happen until we stop seeing these things in a vacuum and and back to the idea of this is lived experiences and this is cumulative and your collection of these experiences over and over again. And that's why like my Instagram feed, I have so many activists. I have it in my face because I want to continue to see it and see it and see it. And a lot of the things I continue to see posted is like more black lives. Like how many does it take? And I'm like, I don't know. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it and, and I hadn't, you know, to say I had no idea. I think that is a slap in the face <laughs> to, I think a better statement is I didn't care to have an idea cause it didn't impact me. That's deep, you know? And I think that that's a lot of it. And until with white people is it's not technically impacting us. We only get mad when it's going to impact us, like messing up our schools. Right. It's not your problem. It's not your problem. And so we are, I love this. I think, I was just going to say, I think my call to my fellow white people is to open your damn heart. Yeah. And I, because I think for some reason that is when I became very aware is seeing George Floyd, no, um, Ahmaud Arbery, sorry, Ahmaud Arbery. seeing him running and being gunned down. For some reason, I was like, what just happened? What world do I live in? Who am I? The impact of that hit me. And I just, that was a heart space. That was, it could have been my son. It will. It won't be. Let's be real. It right. could have been right. if I was black. That could have been my boy. Right. And this is what black mothers are screaming <laughs> from the top of their lungs, right? And we're just not yeah. hearing. And I think you're right. I think it is a matter of we can't hear. Not that we're not mm-hmm. listening. How do we hear? <sighs> that brings us. It's a perfect place. It brings us to are ending with tips to grow your peach. Um, The peach in this case is uh, about race and being open. And so my advice would be one, learn 
about your whiteness until you can readily and confidently identify it in any scenario where you can see whiteness at work. And I don't mean that in terms of villainy, Mm -hmm. but just see that this is a white thing, not a normal thing or the mainstream thing. See white things as quickly and easily as you can see black things (laughs) or Latinx things or gay things. So that would be my first tip. Learn about your whiteness to the point where you can readily and easily identify it. And then my second tip to grow your peach for our listeners would be what you just said, Meredith, which is keep your heart wide open. Listen even if it hurts. And the thing that I would add as a point of hope is all good effort is good. Mm, Yeah. And with that, I think we'll let everyone go. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Peaches Ain't Pink. If you want us to riff on something specific, DM us on Instagram at Peaches Ain't Pink. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, and share with your favorite peaches. <laughs>